everybody, welcome back to the Bible Tidbits Podcast. I'm glad you joined us today. Today we're going to be going through chapter 6, verse 9 to 819 of the book of Genesis. Now this will be part 1 of two parts because this is a longer section. But this section details the flood with Noah and the ark and all the animals. So very well-known Bible story. But hopefully we can pull a few details from it that maybe you haven't noticed before, hadn't even thought about before. Before we get going, I want to read from you a hymn. This hymn is called Soldiers of Christ in Truth Arrayed. Soldiers of Christ in Truth Arrayed, a world in ruin needs your aid. A world by sin destroyed and dead, a world for which the Savior died. His gospel to the lost proclaim, good news for all in Jesus' name. Let light upon the darkness break, that sinners from their death may wake. Morning and evening sow the seed, God's grace the effort shall succeed. Seed times of tears have oft been found, with sheaves of joy and plenty crowned. We meet to part, but part to meet, when earthly labors are complete, to join in yet more blessed employ in an eternal world of joy. Amen. It was one of my favorite hymns because I think it pushes us forward upon our mission here on earth to spread the gospel. But now getting into the section that we're starting today. As I said, this will be a two-parter because there's a lot going on and a lot to cover in it. We see it start off with the, these are the generations of bracketing out a new section. And this section will take up about three episodes as it is longer, but two of them will be 6, 9 through eight nineteen. And this longer section shows us everything from the calling of Noah to leaving the ark after the flood. And this event, it's a very well-known one. It's in all the children's books. Usually there's some paintings in church nurseries about this event. And lots of kids know about it. You know, there's a rainbow in the sky and all the cute little animals are upon a boat. But in reality, Noah's Ark and the story depicting all everything around it is the wrath of God being unleashed upon the corrupt, sinful man. It, it is the complete annihilation of everybody except those whom God deemed to put on the ark. This isn't some cutesy little children's book. This is a large judgment. Only Noah and his family are left. Only the line of Noah. So we see humanity comes to another bottleneck. The first bottleneck with, with Adam, the creation of Adam. But now we have Noah and his three sons and all of their wives. And I think we, we need to see through this story that God judges sin. And this time, it was a, a final judgment here to them, an immediate judgment. But to us, you know, it's not so immediate. It's not that we sin and the next day or a couple years later we can expect the judgment for that sin. But that judgment is coming. It might not be in this life. But God will judge sin. We see in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is upset 
that God is, is not doing anything about the sins of these people. And God says, oh, I'm going, I'm going to judge them. Don't, don't you worry. He's like, I'm actually going to use this people to judge them. And then Habakkuk, of course, gets mad. He's like, well, judge, yes, but not through those people. And God's like, oh, don't worry, I'm going to judge them too, showing that the judgment for sin will come upon all. And that's ultimately what the flood story is, is the judgment of sin. And in this, we see Noah is kind of like a new Adam. We see it kind of bottleneck back to him here in the end. Um, Through this story, we see that chiastic structure um, that we've mentioned once or twice before. We find this structure throughout um, the book of Genesis and a lot of the stories. Um, I'm going to put a, I'm going to type it up down in the description below for you to see, but I'll, I'll try to explain it over here for you. But in the first section of it, we see a transitional introduction. And then at the very end in chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, we see a transitional conclusion. So those are the top and bottom of this story. The next layer, the B layer, we see violence in God's creation. But after the flood, we see covenant blessing and peace. At the C layer, we see God resolve to destroy at the beginning. But at the end, we see God resolve to preserve order. When we get to D, at the beginning, we see the command to enter the ark. And in the end, we see the command to leave the ark. When we get to E, we see the beginning of the flood and then the drying of the earth at the end. The F, we see the rising of the floodwaters. Then we see the receding of the floodwaters. And in the middle, we have the G layer. It is God remembers Noah. And I'll type that out so it's easier to see in the description below. I encourage you to go look at that. But that's kind of a, a structure we can view this story through with. God's remembering Noah in chapter 8, verse 1 is kind of the peak, pinnacle part of it. But before we get started into our verse-by-verse breakdown, I want to read a few cross-references throughout the Bible so that we can see our how the story fits in everything and some other things that help us get a deeper view of it. First one is Romans chapter 8, verse 21. And it says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we see that the creation itself is in bondage to this corruption. We are in bondage to this corruption. We're slaves to sin. But someday that will be no more for us. Next, we have 1 Peter chapter 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20 which says because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water and here Peter's bringing out the fact that the people of this time had time to repent. Noah spent a lot of time building this ark, as we're going to see. And they had time to repent, but they didn't. And God brought through the eight. The eight, Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives. Then going to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10, through 10, says this, 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, but if by upturning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul after their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So in that it's showing all these events that God carried people through. Namely, the flood was the big one that pertains to our lesson today. Like if he can bring Noah and the seven others with him through the flood, how much more can he preserve us through our trials? Then finally, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the world is going to be wiped clean by the flood waters. Sin's going to be wiped out by the wrath of God here. Not that sin is at its end. But we know that someday God's judgment will come again. He, he does promise it won't be by the waters. But we see throughout his word that it will be by fire. So what, what greater judgment is to come? And how that should motivate us forward. I recently heard in a sermon over the first part of the book of Haggai where he used this line that prophecy, and for us it goes to the end time prophecy, is supposed to be a stimulant, supposed to stimulate us, push us, make us more active towards things. But instead, we're using it as a narcotic to, to dull our feelings towards things, and that should not be so. So may the warnings that we have, knowing that this great judgment is happening in Genesis, but there's another great judgment awaiting us in Revelation, may that stimulate us forward as we go through life. So let's look at this as we travel through, starting in nine verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6. We see that these verses, they open up another section with the typical, these are the generations of statement. And after this opening, we learn three things about Noah right out the bat. First is that he's a righteous man. He walked with God and that he had three sons. So those are things. He's a righteous man. He walked with God and he has three sons. And this walking, it reflects that of Adam in the garden. And it reflects that of Enoch because he walked with God and then he was not. And we see that, that, that that's his manner of life. He had a, he had a way of life that reflected God. He served God. He, he spent time with God. And then we, we see in his three sons. You know, it's typical in the Bible. If you read and notice among 
different people that important figures tend to have three sons. You know, they probably have, or lots of people have three sons, but they tend to note all three sons after this. And we see Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we know that the line of promise will continue through Shem. So we see a little bit of repetition throughout this flood story. And the biggest repetition we see is the word corrupt. And it shows with what we're dealing with exactly here. You know, this is the reason that God's justice will be enacted. And we can see to the extent that it will be enacted. We say that most of the flesh is It doesn't say that most of the flesh is corrupted. It says all flesh is corrupted. But that's a deep corruption. That's a, that's a deep level of sin. And, and truly, we, we've all sinned. It says that in the book of Romans. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God. But we see that there is a high level of corruption. Big enough to grieve God to his heart and to make him desire to blot out man. But the hope is that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. See, because of this increased corruption, God is going to put an end to all flesh. But through this man named Noah, life will be preserved and in Noah's life, we see him bear many similarities with Moses. You know, they're both saved through water, and they both start a new section of history. And lots of other small similarities. Moses was saved through the parting of the Red Sea, and Noah is saved through the flood. And as we look at the lives of both of these men, we should think exactly kind of what they represent. As we read the, through the Bible, one helpful thing to look at is what we call typology. And that's where we see different types. And when we say type, that's kind of a broad category. But what I would say that Moses and Noah both are, are a type of Christ. They are not the Christ. They are not Jesus Christ. Because Christ just means the Savior. You know, Christ is the title. Jesus is his name. Um... But Noah and Moses, they both act as a Christ, but not the final, ultimate Christ to come. They both bring about salvation in a way, but it's not the final, ultimate salvation. So we can see some different types going through there. And it's, it's very interesting as you see those and see their similarities. And to people reading this for the first time, not knowing what is to come of this, just reading it as a story. And wondering, well, whenever you see Noah in this story, you think, this is him. This is the Savior. This is the one that was promised in chapter 2 or chapter 3 with the fall. But then we'll later see that it's not him. Then we go through the story. We'll see these other types. And there's there's others throughout. Um, but I think the next biggest one is Moses. We see Moses come in the story like, this is him. This is the guy that's going to be the Savior that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. And we see, no, that it's not him. So there's the anticipation which with each of these guys saying, this is him. 
This is the guy that's going to bring about our salvation from sin. But we see that they all fall short of that. They bring about some form of salvation, whether it be salvation through the flood or salvation uh, as in being free from Egyptian slavery. But they don't bring about the salvation for our sins. They're both righteous men, but they still do not bring about that final salvation. So we see that they, they are types of Christ, but they are not the Christ. And we see Noah is commissioned to build an ark, which an ark is just a very large boat is basically what we can amount it to. Uh, we know that it was around 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall, which that is big. And that's um, a measurement based upon a cubit being 18 inches. So it says, and the Bible tells us how many cubits it is. And through historical research and stuff, we have to figure out what we believe a cubit is. Um, it might have been a little bit more than 18 inches a cubit might have been. Um, so the ark probably didn't get any smaller than that, but it could have been a little bit bigger. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is very helpful for helping us find meanings for this because they were translating it closer to the time where this was still a common language. Um, it renders the word ark as a wooden box. And so we see, in essence, kind of a, a very large wooden box is being built by Noah. And if you ever have the opportunity, or maybe you have been, there's a, I guess you would call it an attraction of sorts, out in Kentucky. And it is called the Ark Encounter. It was a project begun by a man named Ken Ham. And in that, he basically built a life-size ark using the details that he could glean from the book of Genesis here and these dimensions and kind of just a guess, um, you know, was it a squared box or did it have more of a boat-like shape? Um, you know, he, he, he went with the more boat-like shape and then he has the inside and there's a museum in it. So it's very interesting, but I got to go to it um, just this last fall whenever I was in Kentucky doing some studies at my seminary. And just to stand in front of it, see the size of it, was it was just ginormous. So I encourage you, if you're ever in the area or looking to make a cool trip, that would be definitely a cool trip. Um, go see some other things around there, but that's definitely a, a jam-packed day um, could be spent at that place. And then there's also the Creation Museum, um, also nearby, so you can have a couple day trip right there, just in those two attractions there. Very interesting, but but just to stand and see, you know, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall, just like our brains comprehending that when you look at it, when you're standing right next to it, that's a big boat. That's a really big boat, and Noah here built this. You know, he built this without cranes, without power tools. Um, so we see, you know, we see throughout the story, it takes him a long time to build it. And so we see his dedication to God in the construction of the ark. And so we need to, we need to remember that, you know, Noah, he wasn't just faithful to God for a day saying, yes, God. And then he, he went and hopped in a boat. This was, 
years upon years upon years of continued faithfulness, not seeing the end result yet. You know, Noah is obedient. Because of Noah's obedience, God promises to establish his covenant with him. And this this language of covenant, it's going to become common throughout the Bible story. Um, But a covenant is an oath-bound promise. And historically, we are in the same situation that Noah is in. Though there's, we, we can know that God's wrath is coming. We, we, we see it clearly throughout the Bible. The coming of Jesus now is just as real as the coming of the flood for Noah. So in our own lives, we need to have this continued faithfulness, just like Noah did for all those years as he built the ark. You know, we haven't seen the wrath. We, we know it's coming. We're told it's coming. We see kind of what it's looked like, but we haven't physically seen it yet. But we're called to act now, knowing it's coming. Just the same way Noah is called to act now, knowing there's a great flood coming. You need to build a big boat. Well, there's a great judgment coming. And we need to tell everybody we can about the gospel so that they can be saved from that judgment. So may that be an encouragement to you today that Noah's not all about rainbows and animals and boats, but it's about the wrath of God. It's about the sin of humanity. And really, we're not in too different of a place right now. We need to have that continued faithfulness. You know, the the enormity of what Noah did for God. You know, we need to basically take the same amount of enormity in our own lives. Now, we aren't building a giant boat like he is, but we're sharing the greatest news that anybody could hear and we need to use the coming judgment as motivation to do that next week we're going to pick up in the flood story in chapter seven i thank you all for joining me and i hope to see you all next time